open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and reach for a piece of paper and something to write with because today we're going to go to Bible school. Is that all right? So go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to begin with the opening verses, and I want to give you the context of the book of 2 Timothy so that we can really make this book come alive for you. But let's begin in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, and of course, Paul is writing. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and then if you have an ink pen or a pencil, underline the next two words, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, I thank my God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Either underline or circle the word remembrance. Then in verse 4, greatly desiring to see thee being Mindful of thy what? Tears. And the word tears here in Greek is plural. It is not a teardrop, but it really means that Timothy was sobbing. And the reason that Paul knew Timothy was sobbing, most scholars say, is because when he received a letter from Timothy, he could see the stains of Timothy's tears on the parchment. And Timothy was in such a desperate position that he wrote a letter to Paul and in the letter, he poured his heart out. He explained everything that he was undergoing and going through and was appealing to Paul, please help me. Tell me what I should do in the situation that I'm in. And at the time that Timothy wrote this letter, he was the presiding leader or he was the senior pastor of the church of Ephesus. You know, when you're the pastor of a large church, who do you turn to when you have a problem? And the only person that Timothy knew to turn to was the Apostle Paul. And when he wrote his letter to the Apostle Paul and said, Paul, I'm in trouble. I'm struggling. I don't know what's going to happen to me, and I'm dealing with a spirit of fear. Paul himself was in prison in Rome where he was being tried as an arsonist, an arsonist. Now, let me give you a little history to the book of 2 Timothy. Christianity was never a persecuted faith until the year 64. If you read about persecution in the book of Acts, especially in the earlier years, they are all religious persecutions. There was no official governmental persecution against the church until nearly 30 years after Pentecost. Some say even 40 years after Pentecost. All that early persecution was religious persecution. But in the year 64 something very strange happened. Nero burned down the city of Rome, and he needed to find a scapegoat to blame for the fire. Well, if anybody could be naturally nutty, it would have been Nero, because he came from a very crazy family. His great-grandfather was Caesar Augustus, who declared that he was God. Same Caesar Augustus who had an affair with Cleopatra, who was a very dear friend of Herod the Great. It's amazing how small the world was at that time and how it was so connected. Well, 
After the time of Caesar Augustus, the throne went to Caesar Augustus' nephew and his adopted son, whose name was Tiberius. The little town of Tiberius, which is on the Sea of Galilee, was built in his honor. But Tiberius was a sexual pervert. In fact, he was so sexually twisted that he retreated to the Isle of Capri. He called it the Orgy Island or the Pleasure Island. And his intention would be that orgies took place on that island 24 hours a day. And for 14 years, he ruled Rome from that twisted place. And on the island with him was his nephew, whose name was Caligula. Caligula was mistreated sexually by his uncle and by the other men on the island. And so when Tiberius died and Caligula came to power in Rome, he only ruled for four years. He had been so abused mentally by his uncle on that island for all of those years that he brought all of that twistedness and all of that abuse to the throne with him. Well, you can imagine what a man like that would do if the whole power of the world was placed in his hands. And in fact, Caligula was so mentally twisted that he believed that he was God and he fashioned himself after the Greek god Cronus. The Greek god Cronus ate the babies of one of his sisters. So when Caligula's sister gave birth to twins, he ate them to prove that he was the equivalent of Cronus. I'm just telling you this to tell you what kind of a family Nero was from. When Caligula died, the throne went to Caligula's uncle, whose name was Claudius. Claudius married a woman whose name was Agrippina. Agrippina was the sister of Caligula. Caligula had had an incestuous relationship with Agrippina, so she had all of that abuse in her. Now she had all this power. She carried it into the throne when she became the wife of Claudius the emperor. She had a son from a previous marriage whose name was Nero. She wanted Nero to be the next Roman of the emperor, uh, emperor of the Roman Empire. So she fed her husband, Claudius, who was the emperor, a bowl of poison mushrooms. He died, and she proclaimed that her son Nero was the new emperor of the Roman Empire at the age of 16. Now, how many of you have had a 16-year-old? Can you imagine giving all the power in the world to your 16-year-old and telling him that he was a god and there was nothing that was wrong for him to do? And Nero became the 16-year-old emperor of the Roman Empire. And he was told by his mother, you're god, you're god, you're god, you're god. He began to embrace his own divinity and began to eliminate anyone who would disagree with him. So first of all, he had his teacher, Seneca and Lucia, killed. Then he began to have members of the Roman Senate killed. And then he got tired of his mother's manipulation. So he had his mother killed. And when he had his mother killed, finally he was free to be everything that he always dreamed he could be. And Nero believed, he really believed, that he was the greatest musician that had ever lived. 
He believed he was the greatest actor that had ever lived. So even though it was not permitted for Roman emperors to perform, he began to perform on the stage and sing. And history said his singing was just horrific. But people couldn't leave his performances because if they got up and walked out, they would be killed. And there's actually one record of a woman who was so pregnant, she gave birth to her baby in his concert because she was afraid to walk out. He believed he was the greatest architect that had ever lived. And so he wanted to design himself a new home. And he would call it the Golden Palace. A house completely veneered in mother of pearl, which was then to be covered with gold leaf. And that's why it was called the Golden Palace. And the house that he wanted to build was 300 acres. So if you think you know of somebody with a big house, nobody has a big house. <laughs> but there was a problem. Where he wanted to build his house was the most ancient section of Rome. So he went to the Roman senators and said, I want to tear down this section of Rome. I want to build my palace. And they said, Nero, you may think that you're God, but we're not going to let you tear down our houses for you to build your palace. So he went to his villa just out on the outsides of Rome called his servants and said, I want you to go into the main circus in the city of Rome. I want you to set a fire when people are not there and they don't know what's happening. And they obeyed him. And the embers began blowing in the air. And soon the entire city of Rome was on fire. And by the time the fires had gone out, the section where Nero wanted to build his house was in complete rubble. And finally, he could construct his dreams. And he began constructing his 300-acre house. And rumors began to circulate throughout the city of Rome that it was Nero who instigated the fire. So the Roman Senate called him for his own trial and his own execution. And while he was en route to the Senate, he conceived a diabolical idea. And when he finally sat in front of the Senate and they brought their charges against him, he said, how could you think that I, Nero, would burn down my beloved city of Rome? I can tell you who did this. My spies have brought me information. And then the Senate said, tell us who burned down the city of Rome. And Nero said, Christians, this new group, this sect in our town, they have burned down the city of Rome. They said, tell us what you know about these Christians. And he brought five allegations, which were partially true, and they also were untrue. And this was the beginning of fake news. <laughs> There's nothing new, my friends. Nothing new. You think transgenderism's new? No. Do you know to be a priest in the cult of Sybil in the city of Smyrna, you could only be a priestess if you started as a man. 
you had to go through a surgical procedure to have all your male anatomy removed, and you had to become a woman to be a priestess in the temple of Sybil, which means the first century church had to deal with transgenderism. There's nothing new under the sun. We can handle anything. The church is anointed to deal with it all. But Nero said, number one, Christians are lawbreakers. They do not have permission to meet, yet they are meeting in underground secret meetings. And to a degree, that was true. Because you couldn't meet as a group unless you had the express approval of the emperor. He never gave it. So every time they met together, they were breaking the law. But they had to make the same choice, which we may have to make. Do we obey the law of man or do we obey the law of God? The law of God said, forsake not the assembling of yourself together. The law said you may not meet. They had to decide which law they were going to obey. And they chose to submit to the higher law. And because they submitted to God, they violated Roman law. So to a degree, they were lawbreakers, but they were obeying the law of God. Secondly, he said, in their underground illegal meetings, they're talking about another king and another kingdom. And of course, they were talking about the kingdom of God and King Jesus. But he made it appear as if they were subverters of government. Doesn't that sound familiar to what people are saying in our own time? Number three, he said, in their illegal underground meetings... They practice something called the love feast. And he alleged that Christians were sexual perverts. Well, for you to understand how bad this allegation must have been, Nero was married to two men. He was as twisted sexually as one could be. So for a sexually twisted person to accuse somebody else of being sexually twisted, what in the world did he say about them? But he said in their illegal underground meetings where they're talking about another king and another kingdom, they're having orgies of the worst kind, and that's not all. He said Christians are cannibals. The leaders of their sect Jesus of Nazareth said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And in their illegal underground meetings, they are eating flesh and drinking blood, which of course was communion. But he was so effective with his charge. The church had to fight rumors of cannibalism for 200 years after that. Again, fake news. And lastly, he said, I don't know how you think I burned down the city of Rome. Haven't you heard what these Christians have been saying on our streets? They've been standing on our street corners preaching that in the future, a big fire of judgment was going to come. We should have listened to them because they were giving us a clue that they were going to burn down the city of Rome. And by the time he was finished, he was so convincing that they believed him. And for the first time in history in the year 64, a governmental persecution began against the church in all the major cities of the Roman Empire. Well, the major cities of the Roman Empire were Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, and Ephesus. Where was Timothy? Timothy was in Ephesus. And now Timothy's church 
which was the biggest church in the world until Dr. Cho. Timothy's church probably had about 100,000 members. They were living in amazing revival. But when the fires of persecution came, it began to reveal who really was committed to Christ. And let me tell you, friends, it's easy to serve the Lord when it's easy going and it costs you absolutely nothing. But when fire comes, it always reveals who people really are. And of course, we're not wishing fire on anybody, but whether you like it or not, fire comes in life. Fire comes to relationships. Fire comes to ministry. Fire comes to business. And it's not fire sent by God. It's just life. Life brings fire. And sometimes the enemy brings fire. And fire always reveals the level of people's commitment. And now Timothy, who has been enjoying being the pastor of the world's biggest church, is discovering that some people he thought would always be with him were just fair-weather believers, including believers that he had raised up to be leaders in his church. And now they were coming saying, Pastor, we never knew our faith was going to come to this. But if we remain faithful, we're going to lose our lives. And they began leaving the church. And now, whereas Timothy before was pastoring the world's biggest church, now he is pastoring the world's biggest church in decline. And not only that, because he is the pastor of the church, he is the most visible Christian in the entire city of Ephesus. And he knows the reality is at any moment there could be a knock on his own door. He could be arrested for his faith. And if the Roman authorities could get their hands on him, he knew they would make his death the most miserable of all in order to make it an example to all of the other believers who had remained faithful. So a spirit of fear has begun to work in this man of God. We know that he had a spirit of fear because Paul says so. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, he says, God has not given you a spirit of fear. And by the word, the word spirit means it is a spirit. Fear is a spirit. You can feel fear when it comes in the room. It brings fear with it. It brings panic. And in fact, when he says a spirit of fear, the word fear, the Greek word delia, it describes something that causes you to retreat, something that causes you to feel the need to protect yourself. You're no longer advancing. Now you are retreating. You're cowering. You're going into hiding. It paralyzes you when you're in ministry because you can't function. It affects your ability to love others. It affects your ability to walk in power. It affects your ability to have a sound mind. Because when a spirit of fear is operating in you, you don't think soundly. You think of everything that could possibly happen to you. You begin to imagine things that could never happen to you. But you begin to imagine them like a movie screen in your mind until you're seized by a spirit of fear and you're paralyzed. And Timothy, as the leader of the church, is paralyzed. He is so hurt by people he thought would always be faithful walking out on him that now he's having a hard time giving his heart to others. He can't walk in love because he's dealing with hurt. He can't walk in the power of God 
because he's been seized by a spirit of fear. And by the word, the word power that is used in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, the Greek word dunamis, most people say, oh, yeah, we know that word. It means dynamite or it means power, but it's much more than that. That word dunamis is the very Greek word which was used to describe a force of nature, like a hurricane, a tornado, or an earthquake. It is the very same Greek word which was used to describe the full might of the advancing Roman army, which means when the power of God is operative in you, you become like a force of nature. You are a spiritual earthquake. You can shake things up. You become a dynamic spiritual tornado. You become a hurricane that blows things out of the way. And when the power of God is operating correctly in you, you are like a one-man army with the power to force back darkness. But that power working in Timothy had been inhibited because of fear. And Paul says, God has given you a sound mind, not an unsound mind. And sound mind, my friend, the Greek word sophronismos, from the word sozo, which means to save or to deliver, and the word friend, which is the Greek word for your head, your intelligence, or your brain. When you compound the two words together, the word sound mind, sophronismos, really means a delivered head or a delivered brain. It is a mind that is set free of all inhibitions. But Timothy's mind was completely encumbered with fear. He wasn't thinking freely. He was not that force that God wanted him to be. He was not able to choose new leaders because he was so affected by those that hurt him. He was not walking in love, power, and a sound mind. And in fact, he was so taken with fear that he's written this letter to Paul. And Paul now can see the teardrops on the letter. And he knows that his son in the faith is in trouble. So in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and what are those two words I told you to underline? According to the what? The promise of life. Everybody say life. Which is in Christ Jesus. The words according to in Greek are the word kata. The word kata describes something that is dominating, subjugating, or conquering. We'll remember that the church at that moment felt like it was being encumbered by a spirit of death on every hand. And now Paul in the first verse makes a declaration. I am dominated, conquered, and subjugated by the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. He begins the epistle with a declaration that we are dominated by life. It doesn't matter how much death is going on around us. Then he says in the next verse, grace mercy and peace be unto you. Now, when Paul writes most of his epistles, what does he say? He says, grace and peace be unto you. Why does he say grace and peace? Anybody know? You think it's just a theological formula that he concocted? No. How did Jews greet each other? They say, shalom, peace. How do Greeks greet each other? They say, Keras, grace. And when Paul said grace and peace be unto you in his epistles, in one little phrase, he was wrapping his arms around the entire world. To all of you that are Greeks, I say grace be unto you. To all of you that are Jews, I say shalom, grace and peace. He's wrapping his arms around the church, which is neither Jew nor Gentile. We're all mixed up together. And in one statement, he hugs all of us. But in this particular case, 
he tucked the word mercy between the grace and the peace. And he's writing to a young man that is very overwhelmed by what he's encountering in life. Paul only tucks mercy between the grace and the peace in two letters, this letter and in the book of Titus. Well, now, why would he tuck mercy between grace and peace when he wrote to Titus? Because he had left Titus on the Isle of Crete by himself. And in fact, when you read what Paul writes to Titus, he says, I really left you in the lurch. I kind of abandoned you there, but I need you to finish everything that I didn't finish. I need you to set in order the things that are lacking. And he left them on an island with Cretans. And in Paul's letters, you talk about not being politically correct. Paul said, we know about the Cretans. They're all lazy gluttons and liars. That's what he said about the people of Crete. And so you'll understand how raunchy the people of Crete were when they celebrated weddings. They were known to take the former boyfriend of the bride who's just married a new man, tie him to a team of horses and drag him behind the funeral party until he died. And that's one of the ways they celebrated their wedding feasts. That's the kind of people the Christians were. Now, how would you like to be left alone on an island like that and be told to set everything in order? <laughs> and Titus was so overwhelmed by the assignment that when Paul wrote to him, he didn't just say grace and peace be unto you. He tucked a little mercy between the grace and the peace. When Timothy was overwhelmed, he tucked mercy between the grace and the peace, which tells us if any of us are feeling overwhelmed, God doesn't just give us grace and peace, but he tucks a little mercy between the grace and the peace. God is looking at us and he's working on our behalf. And then Paul says, look at the following verses. I have remembrance of thee in my prayers. Huh. The word remembrance in Greek is the word menea. The word menea is the old Greek word, write this down if you're taking notes, for a statue, a monument, or a memorial. A statue, a monument, or a memorial. If you were really going to translate this exactly from the Greek, it says, I am building statues, monuments, and memorials of you in my prayers. And another place where this word is translated correctly is in Acts chapter 10, when the Bible says that an angel appealed to Cornelius. Do you remember that? And the angel said, Cornelius, your prayers and your alms are come up for a what? a memorial before God. It is the very same word. And here we find that when we pray in faith or when we give money in faith, it's not just the speaking of words that disappear or the giving of money, which we never see again. But if it's done in faith, the very act of prayer, the very act of giving builds monuments, it builds statues, it builds memorials in the presence of God. And God never forgets a prayer that is prayed or a gift that was given because it stands before 
before him like an everlasting monument. And now Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, in my prayers, I'm building statues, monuments, and memorials of you in my prayer. It doesn't matter where God looks. He sees you there. He sees you there. He sees you here. He sees you there because I'm stacking the throne room filled with statues, monuments, and memorials of you. When my grandmother Renner was very old, one day she said to me, Ah, oh, Ricky, I'm of no value to anybody. Can't get out of this chair. All I can do is sit here and pray for you. I said, Grandma, it's probably the most effective thing you've ever done for me. Keep it up. Keep it up. Every time you call my name, you're building a statue of me that God sees. Pack the throne room of heaven so full that God cannot get away from seeing me. There's Rick. There's Rick. There he is. Can I ever get away from him? There he is. There he is. There he is. There he is. That is the power of our prayers. And my friends, when you call God's, someone's name to God in prayer, you're literally building something in the presence of God that he will be confronted with. And then the following verse, Paul says, I'm mindful of your, what? Tears. So he's received this letter from Timothy. Now, why is Paul in prison? Because when this governmental persecution began after the great fire of Rome, they began to round up Christians. This is when they began to burn Christians at the stake. Most Christians were burned at the stake. Do you know why? Because according to the Roman law, you were killed according to your crime. If you were a thief, they cut your hand off. If you were an arsonist, they burned you. And that's why Christians were being burned. And now Paul is among the leaders that have been rounded up. And Paul is sitting in prison. The fake news is all over the city of Rome. The chief arsonist that planned the fire of Rome has been captured. He is in prison. And back in those days, there were not newspapers, but there were walls covered with news. And people were gathering around the walls, reading the latest news. They have captured the chief arsonist. Now, Paul is sitting in prison. He cannot say a word to defend himself. And he knows what everybody's saying about him. But because he is a Roman citizen, he can receive mail. That's one of his guarantees. He gets a letter in the mail from Timothy, and the letter says, Paul, you have no idea how I feel. I'm suffering here in Ephesus. If you were here, you would understand the traumatic events that I'm going through. People have walked out. They have left me. They have abandoned me. Paul, I need you to help me. He writes to Paul, who is in prison suffering for his faith. The three free man is reaching to the bound man, asking for help. And isn't it amazing how when we're all in trouble, we all usually think that our situation is worse than anybody else has ever been. And now Timothy, who is free, he can walk on the streets, writes to Paul who is bound and who has really been abandoned by all of his friends at his first trial. He says that in chapter four. He says, Paul, you have no idea how I feel. Now Paul can see the teardrops. So what does Paul do? He doesn't do what Timothy expected. Would you help me? Would you stand right here? 
Timothy expected, probably, that Paul would just reach out spiritually and hug him <laughs> and say, Timothy, I can't begin to understand how difficult your situation is. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. Sometimes that's helpful and sometimes that's not helpful, especially if it's not true. It would have been a lie if he had said, it's just going to be all right. It was not going to be all right. It was not time for Timothy to cower and retreat. It was time for him to step forward as a man of faith. And he needed somebody to speak the truth to him. And so now Paul does the most amazing thing. Look what he does. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. When I call to remembrance... The unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded that in thee also. Well, I'm sure that when Timothy saw that, he thought, what, what, what? Why are you talking to me about my grandmother? Why are you talking to me about my mother? I'm telling you about me. I'm in trouble. Please tell me something to help me. And Paul says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in your grandmother Eunice and your mother Lois, or maybe I got their names mixed up, but you get the point. And the word dwelt, by the way, that word dwelt is the word for a person who takes up residency in a house and they enjoy their life there. They prosper in that house, which meant his grandmother had a real thriving faith. It took up residency in her. It was a real faith. But notice he says, Timothy, when I called for remembrance, the unfeigned faith. What does that mean, unfeigned faith? Well, the word feigned is the Greek word for hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Do you know where that word comes from, hypocrisy? Anybody know? It is the Greek word which was used to describe the masks that were worn on the Roman and Greek stage. Back in those days, if you were an actor on the stage, you wore a mask. And actors then, and by the way, today also, were considered to be the lower rung of society because they would do anything and say anything for the applause of the people. They didn't mean a word they said. All they did was put on a new mask for whatever crowd they were talking to at the moment. And that is the very word that Jesus used when he said to the scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. It was the equivalent of saying, I know who you guys are. You're just wearing a mask for the applause of the crowd. You don't mean a word you're saying. You don't mean a thing that you're doing. You're just putting on a mask for the people that are watching the show. But when you translate it unfeigned, it means authentic, not bogus, real. 
not a pretend faith, but a real, authentic, genuine faith. Now he says, Timothy, I know what kind of faith you have. It's not bogus. It's not pretend. It's not faith. Fake. It is the same kind of faith that was in your grandmother. It lived and it thrived in her. It is the same faith that she passed to her daughter, your mother. It lived and it thrived in her. And now, Timothy, that same living, thriving, real, authentic faith is in you as well. But now wait, 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 wait. Why this discussion about Timothy's family history? Because Timothy is looking at his future. And when he looks at his future and he hears all the bad news, he hears all the fake news, he doesn't see anything good in his future. It looks like his future is very up in the air. He is so taken with the spirit of fear that he's paralyzed by looking at his future. So Paul says, Timothy, let's put the present and the future on pause just for a moment and let's turn around and look at your past. The only reason you have a spirit of fear about your future is because you're forgetting your past. And if you look at your past, you'll find that God was faithful to your grandmother. God was faithful to your mother. And they went through very difficult things, but they made it through everything. He says, remember, 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 remember. And then he says in the next verse, wherefore I put you in remembrance of these things. That's not what the Greek says. The Greek says it very differently and very differently in an important way. The Greek says, listen to me, write this down if you're taking notes. I'm reminding you of these things. Reminding him of what things? That God's faithfulness is a part of his family's past. I'm reminding you of these things. That your grandmother had a real faith and God was faithful to your grandmother. I'm reminding you of your mother. She had a real faith and God was faithful to your mother. God never let them down. God never let them fall through the hole. He was always with them. I'm reminding you of all of these things. The Greek says that by your remembering them, you can stir up the gift of God that is in you. Now, most of us love that verse, to stir up the gift of God, which is in you by the putting on of my hands. And so most people say, I want somebody to lay hands on me. But what do you do if you're by yourself and there's nobody to lay hands on you? How are you going to stir up that gift? How are you going to stir it up if there's nobody to lay hands on you? Well, in order to stir up coals, you have to have a poker, don't you? Now we find that God has given to every person a poker. It is called memory. I'm reminding you of these things that by your remembering and remembering and remembering and remembering them, you will stir up the gift of God that is in you by the putting on of my hands, which means if there's nobody else to lay hands on you by yourself, you can say, I'm putting this fear on pause and I'm going to remember everything God has ever done for me in the past. And by the time you walk through this event and this event and this this event and this event, first of all, you'll realize what you're facing probably is not any worse than something you've already faced in the past. You walk through everything every time. You didn't think you'd have enough food on the table, but the truth is you need to lose 30 pounds. 
You're fine. You still ate. You still have a roof over your head. God walked you through everything. And by the time you walk through your past into your present, your faith will be so stirred up. Now you'll be ready to deal with your future. Now, I'm not preaching theory to you. This is what I do. The last two years of my life, <laughs> I could write another book about the last two years of my life. Things being said to me, if there was ever an opportunity to operate in a spirit of fear, believe me, I have had it. I had to make a choice. You have to make a choice what you think about. You have to make a choice. In fact, if you jump over to verse 12, notice what Paul says. He said, I am persuaded. You see that word persuaded? Paul is talking about himself. I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded. He's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He is in prison. Threats are being made against him. Rather than think about the threats, he says, I know whom I have believed. The word I know, the Greek word oida, which means I've had experience with God and by my experience with him, there are some things I know. He is absolutely faithful and I am persuaded. Everybody say persuaded. The word persuaded is the Greek word patho. The word patho means to coax someone from one opinion to another, to sweet talk them out of one opinion into another opinion, to sway them from one position to another position, which means Paul in prison has not had anybody to help him, nobody to help him think straight, nobody to help him deal with his own fears. So Paul Patho did some self-talk. He started talking to himself. And even though the reality said he was in trouble, he began to say, I know whom I have believed. And Paul walked himself into faith even when he was into prison. He talked himself into a position of faith. And my friends, there's no more body more powerful to talk to you than your own mouth. And the Bible says faith comes by hearing. What does the Greek say? Hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. Your head will believe what it hears. And if your mouth is running a bunch of negative stuff, your mind will believe it and it will become your reality. Your reality will be what you embrace. If you begin speaking faith to yourself and speaking it and speaking it and speaking it until you believe it, it will become your reality. We get what we believe. And there's a time to tell your head to shut up and for your mouth to begin telling you what to believe. Paul talked himself into faith because there was nobody else to talk to him. And now he says to Timothy, hey, I can't be there to lay hands on you, so I'm going to do the next best thing. Remember, what in the world are you doing thinking about your future like this? Turn around and look at your past. You didn't think you could pay your bills, but you did. You didn't think you'd make it through that trial, but you did. Walk through all of those experiences. That's why the book of Psalms tells us again and again to remember the works of the Lord. If you're afraid of your future, you're just forgetting your past. Wherefore I put you in remembrance, the Greek says, I'm reminding you of all these things about your family that by you remembering them, you'll stir up the gift of God which is in you by the putting on my hands for God has not given you this spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 
Wait. Then look what he says in verse 8. In verse 8 he says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. That's very important because the word ashamed describes a person whose face is blushed with red. They are so embarrassed. They're feeling disgraced. Timothy is afraid to be associated with the Lord. And in Greek, it is a negative with a prohibition. It means stop being ashamed. That is how far the spirit of fear had taken him. Even Timothy was tempted to be ashamed of being a Christian. And Paul says, furthermore, don't be ashamed of me either. Be not therefore, stop being ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And then he says, now listen to this. Be thou partaker, everybody say, be thou partaker. Of the what? Of the what? Of the afflictions of the gospel. How? According to the power of God. Now, living in America is sweet. But Americans for their faith have not really suffered a lot for the gospel. But now we've entered a new age, haven't we? We're living at the end of the age. What the apostle Paul calls in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the end of days. The word last in Greek, the word eschatos, it describes the last port. When you've sailed to that port, you can sail no further. You've come to the end. Paul was describing the end of the age. When you come to the last port and there is no other place to sail, you've come to the very, very end of the age. He says perilous times will come. And my friends, if we're living in the end of the age, it means that's the territory we're going to live in. And in that territory, we might deal with some afflictions of the gospel. And of course, everybody's afraid of that. But let me tell you what the rest of the verse says. It says, what? According to, everybody say, according to? According the power of God. According to, ay, 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 it's the Greek word kata, the same word we saw in verse 1. A dominating force, something that dominates, conquers, subjugates. And here Paul declares that if you will take a stand for what is right... If you will refuse to budge, even if it seems society is against you, if you will do that which is right, if you will stand by the gospel in that stand which seems to be so difficult, something divine takes place. The power of God shows up, Kata, to dominate you, conquer you, and subjugate you. God joins himself to the person or people who refuse to budge. And just historically, this nearly drove Nero crazy because he put stakes in his backyard, took Christians, dipped them in tar, tied them to the stakes, set them on fire. He would lean out his balcony window waiting to hear them shriek in pain. And it nearly drove him crazier because he would hear them while they were burning, singing songs. The ancient writers said, singing songs antiphonally unto God. They didn't know what they were doing. They were singing in tongues while they burned. 
They had such victory, even in the fires, they were dominated by the power of God. Which means they didn't feel the fire. Kata, dominated, conquered, subjugated by the power of God, which means if you'll do what is right. And by the way, this doesn't have to do with persecution. This can be in regard to your marriage. If you'll do what's right in your marriage, if you'll do what's right in your business, if you'll do what's right in your finances, if you'll do what's right in your church, in your ministry, even if it creates a difficult situation and people don't like you doing right, God's power will show up to sustain you. It's a sustaining force. So, that's the background to 2 Timothy. <laughs> Did you learn anything new here today? My friends, there is nothing more thrilling than the Bible. Let's believe for a revival of the Bible in this land. If there would just be a return to the Bible, if people would just hear it, believe it, if people would get saved, that already would change everything. There would be more salt and light. But if you've been dealing with the spirit of fear, I want to tell you today, it's just a memory problem. It's just, it's just a memory problem. What you're looking at, it just looks big and scary because it's what you're looking at. Turn around. Remember back then when you didn't know how you were going to pay your bill, but you did? Remember back then when you thought you were going to be in trouble, but you weren't? Maybe you were, but you got out of it anyway. A lot of our trouble is self-inflicted because we're sheep. Sheep just jump into ditches by themselves. But that doesn't change the fact that he's the shepherd. And even if you've made your own mess, his job is to reach down in and pull you out of that thing. And my friends, he will do it again. That is who he is. So choose what you're thinking about. You got to choose what you're thinking about. I'm telling you, the last two years, sitting in my house, one point I couldn't even leave my house for four months. You know, when you can't leave your house, you just sit, look at the walls, the chandelier, the TV, and in our case, the only news we can get is CNN. <laughs> Four months of it. I was so thankful for victory. <laughs> a lawyer, a lawyer saying, no hope. Your story is finished. What has been done to you has never been undone for one person, not in 30 years. Do I have any chance? Zero, zero chance, Mr. Renner. Well, what are you going to think about when you've received news like that? Yeah, you have to choose what you think about. And I just chose to think about the one that can raise the dead. 
the one that can cause dead things to come alive again. Abraham and Sarah that were both barren, but they gave birth to a baby. We serve the God that does all kinds of impossible things. Daily speaking to myself, speaking to myself, speaking to myself, speaking to myself. People would say to me, do you have any temptation to pack your bags and leave? I said, what are you talking about? Leave. I'm not leaving anywhere. God is on the throne. Nothing has changed. He hasn't told me to do anything differently. I don't care what man says. You have to choose what to think about. And patho, you may have to talk yourself into faith. That's okay. Use your mouth. Your mouth's been running, saying all kinds of bad things anyway. Just decide you're going to start saying good things. You have to choose what you say. And what you say is what you'll believe. And what you believe, good or bad, that's what will become your reality.